Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. lawyers so it kind of became a situation where like I was functionally a parent um, and of course you know at 19 20 years old I was obviously <laughs> mature enough and old enough <laughs> to play those roles um, and uh, you know it was it was a great time for me the kids were great um, I did a great job honestly uh, at that time there's a really popular show called super nanny and I was pitching constantly for a super nanny version of that show to come out um, and uh, I look back on it as a fond memory of time. Um, it, was, uh, it was a good time for me. I learned a lot. I enjoyed the family. And they were very good to me. They took care of me. They appreciated the role I played in their life and in their family's lives. They eventually moved on to Colorado. And they're <coughs> grown up now. Um, and it's interesting as a babysitter or nanny or you know whatever kind of role that might play. The kind of temporal aspect that's built into the job. Right, um, or if you're a tutor or a teacher, right? Inherently present in your purpose is the fact that one day you hopefully won't be needed. That one day, hopefully, you'll no longer be serving this purpose. That there will be a time where it's outgrown or moved on or moved past, um, a time when it's unnecessary. Um, this is the argument Paul's going to be making this morning about the law of Moses, the Torah. He's going to compare it actually to a guardian, um, to someone who would have taken care of young boys in the first century. And he's going to say that it's a, a temporary thing. Um, the Galatians um, argument, if you have been with us, we'll recap. If you haven't, we'll introduce you. Um, the problem they're facing is it's a group of Gentile Christians who have been told by some false teachers that they need to come into the people group of Judaism. They need to become Jewish people. They need to adhere to the works of the law, the law of Moses, primarily circumcision and dietary laws, in order to be a part of God's family, to keep that seal of approval. And it's not enough just to have faith in Christ. They need to also add um, obedience, adherence to the law of Moses, to the Torah. And Paul's argument is that once very clear and simple and very forceful and bold, it's no they do not. In fact, if they were to do so for Paul, it would be almost akin to heresy. It would almost be akin to completely distorting the gospel in such a way that he's unsure if you really know what has actually happened in Christ. Um, and so we've been walking through Paul interacting with various arguments that the Galatians have been hearing and trying to get them to understand why Christ alone is all that they need for salvation and why the Torah um, the, the law is not a necessary component of life for them. And the question has arisen and now arises in the passage we're in this morning. Why did God ever give the law? You could have asked in the first century, and you might still be able to ask right now, would not things have been simpler? 
if God had never done that? Would not the whole salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone be just a lot clearer for everybody if there was never this group of people that God had a special relationship with? If he had never told them, hey, you need to circumcise your kids. Hey, you need to follow the Sabbath. Hey, you need to eat this and not eat this. This is how I'll know that you're my people. This is how you'll stay in the covenant with me. Would it not have just been easier to not have that part of history? If now, Paul's saying, it doesn't really apply in a direct manner to the Gentiles. This is the question Paul will answer this morning. In the passage we'll look at, it's very interesting. Um, it says a lot of very interesting things about the law and history and God. Um, and we'll note a few of those highlights as we go through it and talk about it. And then we'll land on kind of the broader picture that undergirds Paul's talking about this question. Um, so if you will with me, Galatians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 19 and read through verse 25 this morning. Why then the law? That's our question. It was added because of transgressions. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, I'm going to be doing a little translating of my own this morning, okay? Um, I think that we can do a little bit better than what we've got with the ESB, but we'll, we'll do that together as we get there. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. If you were here with us last week, um, Paul said that God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed, his seed being Christ. And so Jesus is the one being referred to here. Jesus is the offspring who's come. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by intermediaries. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So let's highlight a few things here. I just want to point out a handful of things. The first one is Paul's answer for the purpose of the law. He actually gives us, no pun intended, three purpose clauses in this passage. So he'll say something about the law, and then he'll say, in order that or so that. And we get a sense of what Paul thinks the law is doing in the world, why it had an existence, why it was there. The first is right away for us. Why in the law? It was added, Paul says, because of transgressions. Now in the Greek, what's translated because of um, can mean one of two things. It can indicate a purpose, which would be translated because of. It can also indicate a goal, which we would then translate it closer to, it was added in order to make or in order to increase or in order to provoke transgressions. I think the second reading is the best reading. If I were to put this passage in front of you this morning, I would not phrase it like, because of transgressions. I think for a couple reasons this is true. The first is because 
you technically can't have a transgression without a law. Does that make sense? You could be doing something wrong and it could be resulting in harmful things, but you're not transgressing something until there's something there to be transgressed. The second reason is because this is actually not a weird thought for Paul. It might seem odd for us um, to think that like, the law was added to provoke people to transgress. Um, Paul actually says this multiple times in the New Testament. In Romans 5.20, we've got our clearest parallel. Um, in a, a little line that's often overlooked, he says that the law was added so that sin would increase. <clears throat> he says the law was added so that sin would increase. The idea that Paul has here that he seems to be getting at is that the law is given to make whatever situation creation has found itself in more dire. It has provoked creation to go deeper and get weightier under the circumstances that it's found itself in. Um, we might say that the law energizes sin. Um, again, Paul says something similar to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 56, again, often overlooked, he says the sting uh, of sin is death. And he says the power of death, or the power of sin, excuse me, is the law. The law gives power to sin. The law energizes it. The law increases it. It provokes it. Um, and the way this is often understood um, is most easily probably gained access to by thinking about our children. And thinking about the psychology of rules and rule breaking. Um, there's a phenomenon that happens, and parents, maybe you are familiar with this, you've seen this happen, where at certain times, putting in place and writing or in verbal agreement of rule actually causes someone to want to break the rule more, or actually causes them to actually break the rule more. Like they might have already been leaving the refrigerator door open. But when you actually say, listen, this is the rule here. You close the refrigerator door. I don't know about, there's something in me right now that just wants to find a refrigerator and open it. <laughs> just because I hear that phrase, right? <clears throat> this seems to be kind of the, the thought process that, that Paul is getting at here. The, he'll fill this out. We'll see this get filled out. But originally it says the law is added to increase transgressions. To multiply what is happening in creation, not in necessarily a positive way. Now, when it still serve God's purposes, but not in a direct way of fulfillment of the promise. Now, there's no real parallel to this idea in the Jewish world. Um, in the Jewish world, the law was seen as a good thing. In fact, the irony is not lost on me that in our scripture reading earlier, this worship service from Deuteronomy, part of the law, the passage talks about the law very positively. It, it says actually the law is given to give you life. Paul in verse 21, why did you say what? If the law could have given you life, righteousness wouldn't have to have been given to you by faith. Paul takes a very different approach to the law here than what you find in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, the classical Hebrew idea of the law is that it was given to restrain evil. Um, that the guardian role it plays is like a babysitter who can make your kid behave a little bit better than they would have on their own. They're not going to be perfect, right? But maybe things will be a little calmer until you can come back home and fix things yourself. 
Um, other people, you know, thought that the law was given to just kind of magnify our situation so that we knew we were doing wrong. You know, maybe we were doing wrong, but until the law was put down, we didn't really have it exposed. Some people see the law as um, being put in place to make us feel helpless, right? Um, to make us realize that we can't fulfill all of the requirements of the law. Um, Paul does not always talk about the law the way he's talking about it here. In fact, in Romans, in chapter 7, he'll call the law, quote, good, quote, righteous, and quote, holy. This seems to be much more in line with the standard Jewish thinking of the law. Um, we think because the Galatians have had this twisted, almost fetishized version of the law presented to them by these false teachers, that Paul is, in this context, framing his discussion in a way that has to illustrate very emphatically what he thinks. Um, and so he's going to talk about the law in a negative way, um, contextually, because it's being lifted up so highly to these churches in Galatia. Um, so he says this law has been given um, to provoke um, that can't actually give life. Um, in verse 22, we get our second purpose clause. The scripture, as a kind of synonym for the law here, imprisoned everything under sin so that a promise could be given to people who believe. So the law increases transgressions, provokes people to transgress. The law is given so that a promise can be fulfilled to certain people. And then in verse 24, we get our third purpose clause. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The idea here is coming from two different angles. One, an angle that seems contrary to God's purposes, the law increasing transgressions. The other angle, an approach that seems identical to God's purposes, justifying us by faith. Saving us in Jesus, giving us the promise given to Abraham by our inclusion in and with Jesus Christ. In reality, these are two similar things. In both, the intention is the same by God. He has determined that human beings will only find life, rescuing life, resurrection life, in the act and faithfulness of a son. That there's no door around them that they can open up. There's no hole that they can start to leak through. Um, and what the law ends up doing by imprisoning us is it shuts every option down. The law becomes another power that humanity is enslaved to. Paul uses language like this all the time. He personifies things. And in his mind, the world that we live in is a world where most human beings are not in control, where they are enslaved by powers. The ultimate power being death. Death enslaves all of us. And it controls us more than we think. We've mentioned this in past sermons, but sin leads to death in the Bible, but in the Bible and in reality, death also leads to sin. We sin to avoid dying. Sometimes we sin to push off dying. Just the world of death that we live in can cause us to not always hold true to the principles that we're called to live by by God. We're an enslaved people group. Paul adds to death and to sin here in Galatians the law as one of these nefarious powers 
has enslaved humanity. Um, and the law functions to kind of imprison, to in a sense close every door that humans might have thought they could have found life from, or could have thought they could have walked through to get to God. In talking about these purposes, Paul makes two interesting points about the law. He first references its genesis, or its origin. Um, and he says um, the law um, was put in place through angels and by an intermediary. Um, this thought is maybe one that you're not familiar with, um, but actually it's found in the Hebrew Scripture. So in Deuteronomy, um, when the law is given to the people of Israel, um, we're told that there are holy ones present, often interpreted in history as angels. Um, and in fact, in the Jewish world, a complex tradition had grown up around this idea that angels were involved with the giving of the law. It's actually interesting because... For the Jewish people at the time, this made the law more special, not less special. Does that make sense? What Paul's trying to do here, he's trying to separate it out from the promise. So the promise was given to Abraham and to Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. God, mano y mano, talking to the person he's giving the promise to. And he says, but look over here at this conversation. It's, it has angels, and then even then it's not just angels and humans. Moses has to go up on a mountain and be a mediator between the two people. There's distance. Um, the power has promised. The law is impotent. The power is personal. The law has distance. Um, we think that it's likely the Jewish teachers probably have already emphasized the angelic role in the law as a way of pumping it up to the Galatians. This is how special the law that we've been given is. And Paul's done this before in Galatians. He takes what many people at the time would have thought was a positive thing, and he says, let me, let me look at it from a different angle. We'll agree with you that this is part of the equation, that this is part of the story, but from this angle, it looks like this makes it less of a powerful thing. It looks like it takes it a step farther away from God's direct activity with his people. And then he calls the law very famously a guardian. And he does this, he draws an analogy from human life. Um, in the first century, um, the words translated guardian here, it would have been a very common role that would have been very well known in Jewish circles, Greek circles, and Roman circles. Um, so this is not an obscure idea. This is an everyday type of thing that Paul's drawing from. The pedagogue, the, the guardian here, is a male slave. And the male slave's job is to look after a schoolboy usually from the ages of six to seven to around puberty. Um, obviously, this is probably for your more well-off people in the first century. Not everyone probably has slaves to watch over their kids. Um, Manny's come with a high cost, okay? <laughs> this figure was less of a teacher and more of a protector and guardian. Um, it was a very common role in ancient place. Usually, comedic part was the, the pedagogue guardian. Um, and the role that it seems to have had is they would basically kind of walk the child to and from school, and they would make sure nothing bad happens to that child. And then they were given most of the disciplinary responsibilities. So instead of the father, say, corporally punishing the child himself, that would be up to the pedagogue. In fact, in a lot of the pictures that are painted thus, that this guardian here is holding a rod 
This is kind of what comes to people's minds when they think of it. This is the guy looking after the little boy, making sure he doesn't get hurt, and also making sure he sticks to what he's supposed to be doing here. Um, some people see this um, guardian analogy of the law, and they think that perhaps the law has this teaching role, right? It's a pedagogical role. It's preparing us for the time of Christ. It adds something to our ability to receive and have faith in Christ. I don't think that's the picture Paul's trying to paint. Um, particularly because just look at the context around this. Look at all the language of imprisonment and slavery. We're imprisoned under the law. Scripture imprisons everything under sin. The guardian has come after, in verse 23, we're held captive under the law. Imprisoned until faith. But now that faith has come, and corollary that we've been freed, the guardian is no longer. I think perhaps the guardian is best understood as a prison ward for Paul. The guardian is, is there to make sure, again, right, things are enslaved. Things aren't going anywhere. And this brings us to a very interesting question. Why would God want that? Why would God want his people to be enslaved? Why would God want to ensure that there's more slavery, captivity? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, the first thing to notice, I think, in answering that question is the temporal aspect of a guardian and of the law here. You see this word until multiple times. It's doing this until something happens, until the seed comes, the offspring comes, until Christ comes, until faith comes. So there's a definite turning point in history where what once was weighty and what once was meant to enslave and imprison now no longer has or is supposed to have that role. The picture that Paul paints of salvation in Galatians and throughout the rest of his letters is one that looks more like slaves being freed than guilty people being forgiven. Both of these aspects are part of salvation. We have tended to emphasize in the past 50 years or so in the West the forgiveness aspect of salvation. Um, and that's why we focus all on the law, right? On legal things. Um, we've sinned. We're guilty. We need to be forgiven. We need to go before a judge. That's a big part of salvation. But there's other language that can be used to illustrate salvation. Paul uses something called apocalyptic language. The idea is this. Creation is enslaved to these hostile powers. And God has to decisively intervene. He has to invade to free and to liberate his creation. And I think what Paul's trying to say here in this passage, what he's illustrating, the larger story he's answering this question on top of, is the story of God's liberating act in Jesus. The fact that creation, enslaved by powers, has now been freed by the work of Jesus. This brings us to what we find in verse 22. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here again is a place where I might say we could do better with our English uh, representation of what Paul has written here. I've said before here in Galatians <laughs> that when we see in our Bibles the phrase faith in Jesus Christ, 
I think we should read the faith of Jesus Christ. That it's a subjective genitive, which means Christ is the subject of the faith being talked about, not the object of the faith. Um, we can just talk about this one verse a couple ways. We could ask ourselves what kind of sense it would make if it meant believing in Jesus. Um, first, we could say this verse would be kind of redundant because it talks about having faith in Jesus and then also being given to those who believe. So it's having faith in Jesus, give to those who have faith in Jesus, right? Faith and belief are synonyms if we're going with the objective version, faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the, the second reason um, is because of the various things we've seen uh, throughout Galatians um, and because of the way that this sentence would work otherwise. Um, if the promise is given on the grounds of our belief in Jesus Christ, then that really just makes our salvation something that we've worked for, something that we have earned. Um, it's not that we're not supposed to do the works of the law. It's that we're just supposed to do faith instead. Now, faith is a thing that humans experience and are called to for Paul, but it's something that's kindled by God's prior promise or God's prior act of faithfulness. And when Paul, I think, uses this expression, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, he's using it to stand in for the story of Jesus and highlighting in particular the self-giving death of Jesus on our behalf. And so we might read this prepositional phrase as modifying not the noun promise, but the verb give. The scripture has imprisoned everything under sin on the grounds so that by the grounds of the faithfulness of Jesus, the promise might be given to those who believe. And then this, I think, helps us understand this word faith we see come after it over and over again. Now, before faith came, we were held captive. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I don't think Paul's talking about individual belief here. I think he's talking about an era. I think he's talking again about a personified power. Um, that has come with the advent of Christ. Um, for Paul, something has fundamentally changed about the world because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Um, a people group, a creation that was once in slavery, is now free. We're able to experience freedom through Jesus. Um, ten times in the book of Galatians, Paul uses this phrase, under the power of. The picture he's painting is pretty clear. That apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus' coming, apart from our inclusion in Jesus, that all human beings exist in a state, in a state excuse me, of enslavement. That we're held under the power of things other than God. And this slavery has been broken not by the act of a slave or of a group of slaves, but by the act of God himself. So there are some ways that slaves could perhaps seek freedom. They could revolt and perhaps get freedom. They could run away and perhaps get freedom. Maybe they could reconcile with their captors and perhaps find freedom. What Paul's telling here, the story he's illustrating, is that the law closes those doors. Make sure that humans realize those doors aren't an option. We don't have the power to break out of the slavery. Every door that looks open is closed. Every hole is plugged. Why? So that we're prepared. So that 
we can find the life that God has come to give. The life given to us through Jesus, through his crucifixion and his resurrection. When Paul talks about the law being unable to give life, I don't think he's just talking about the continuation of life. I think he's talking about resurrection life. What creation needs, what you and I need as humans enslaved, is not just to live longer. We need a kind of life that will remake our situation, that will recreate. We need a type of life that calls forth people from a grave. And this type of resurrection life, Paul says, is not what the law is supposed to or able to give. It's what God is supposed to and able to give. And it's what God has given in the death and resurrection of his son. The intention behind both the imprisonment and God's act of salvation was to give us life, to give us resurrection through the faithfulness of Jesus. For the Galatians and for you and I, this is a very important point for us. Life can sometimes feel heavy. Can we agree on that? Life can sometimes feel like a circle. Life can sometimes feel like we're stuck. Life can sometimes feel like there's not a lot of options. And that's even before you add like the law and religion and stuff like that. And that's just trying to get by day to day. And you have these weird promises in Scripture like Jesus and Matthew where he says, Come to me, those who are tired, and find rest. Where Jesus says, My yoke is light. My burden's easy to carry. The message that Paul was given to the Galatians and is given to you and I at the end of the day is that freedom is available for us in Christ. That you and I are not fundamentally enslaved in the way we once were. So before Christ came, the entire world was imprisoned. To sin and to death, to the law. It was heavy and weightful. It was a hamster wheel. But after Christ has come, all those in Christ, all those who have been baptized, all those who have had their faith kindled in Christ, who now believe in Christ, the message to them is you are not a slave. And Paul is going to hit on this for the next three chapters, for the rest of Galatians. Going to great detail about the fact you have been made free. All of these imprisoning powers have been defeated by Jesus. And you no longer have to live under their power. Doesn't mean they can't affect you still. Doesn't mean you can't choose sometimes to still live under their power and feel their effects. It means that there are new possibilities. There are new options. There are new experiences available because of Christ. We can think through, I think, the history of the United States of America with the institution of slavery as an example of, of our identity as people who are once slaves and who are now free. Um, you had slavery as this institution, and then there was a statement given. The Emancipation Proclamation said, these people are no longer slaves. But even after that was true, legally, politically, even after that was stated as fact, 
there was still slavery, right? It took a while for that message to trickle down, for that message to work itself out. This, in a sense, could be what it's like to herald the gospel. It's to come to a group of people who've been freed by Christ, but maybe yet haven't heard that news yet. Or maybe aren't living by that news yet. And then even after the institution is more or less publicly broken down, you still get things like the Jim Crow laws. More like systemic versions of this, right? Slavery and all kinds of things putting power on us and pressure on us has a million ways to get us. And it's like whack-a-mole. You knock it down in one place, and it sneaks up behind you in another place. And what needs to happen is you and I need to be reminded constantly we're not slaves. Even when it feels like you're a slave. Because freed people can sometimes actually be more comfortable as slaves. They're more used to it. It's uncomfortable to them. It's a, not an not a experience that they're, they're used to. Freed people can sometimes be unaware that they're free. And freed people can sometimes just simply forget that they're free. As we come to the table this morning, we come knowing that the seed has arrived, that Christ has come, that faith has entered in, that the law and every other power that could possibly imprison and hold down humanity has been defeated through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, for those who believe, you and I, we find our identity as freed people who, through the power of the Spirit, can experience life, true freedom. And this true freedom will be what Paul now moves on to explore in the rest of Galatians.